and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Uh, joining me today are our podcast regulars, Matt Wynn. Hi. And Seb Rose. Hello. And our guest this time is Richard Bartlett. Hello there. So Matt, you invited Richard Bartlett on. Um, do you want to fill us in why? Yeah, so um, I've been sort of hunting around for uh, other companies and organisations to get inspiration from about how, how we organise ourselves as a company as we grow. And uh, one of the organisations I came across was Inspiral. Um, and Rich is one of the people that started Inspiral, I believe. Um, I was introduced to Rich by uh, Susan Basterfield, who um, I connected with. And uh, we kept trying to arrange to talk and um, we just kept kind of like missing each other over the summer because we were both away and stuff. Um, and then eventually we did connect and I thought, uh, I suggested, well, if we were going to talk, how about we like made, um, made more of it and recorded it for the, for the pod so everybody could in, enjoy this conversation. Um, and I, I was told that he's also a fan of Cucumber. So I think uh, we're, we're fans of Inspiral and... Uh, they're fans of cucumber, so it'll be uh, hopefully just a, a great big loving conversation. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so, Richard, maybe uh, we could kick off today, and you could tell us a little bit about Inspiral, as that seems to be the uh, the first connection. Yeah, sure. I don't know if you can ever say a little bit about Inspiral. It, um, it always seems to be a lot. Um, Matt Matt described me as one of the people that started it, and technically that's not true. Technically, Joshua Vile started it, but then a couple of years ago, he started calling himself the ex-founder um, to signify his full transition away from being the guy in the middle of the flying V to being just one of 50-odd members. Since then, I've been calling myself a co-founder, and there's a whole bunch of us that are co-founders. That's just you know, people that have put in a lot of effort to make the thing work. That little anecdote, I guess, about our job titles is kind of goes right to the heart of what Inspiral is, you know. We're um, a group of people who want to organise in a different way. We want to use our work life to make the world better, so um, to work on projects and products and businesses that leave the world better than we found them. And uh, we seem to have a, a fairly strong rejection of, of traditional corporate structure. Um, and a pretty high appetite for experimenting with alternative structures. So now there's about 250 of us, um, definitely still centred in Wellington in New Zealand, but um, increasingly globally. And um, those 250 people are split up across about a dozen different companies. So I'm also um, the co-founder, the real co-founder this time, of um, a a workers' co-op called Lumio, and we make software for collaborative decision-making. And so that's where I've put most of my energy into when it comes to the organising stuff, like how to how to run a company over a sustained period of time without resorting to a hierarchy and still being efficient and still being able to raise money and, and deliver a useful product. Um, so that's where my energy is. And then and then you've got other people running out of other experiments. Yeah, so I think um, I, I found it quite hard to get my head around what Inspiral is, and that's the really useful um first description i i reckon it might help other people to understand even more to hear the story of like where lumio came from um susan described it yesterday as the love child of the 
Occupy movement and uh, what, well, I get a bunch of freelancers, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, so it sounds really, really interesting, like where, what the origin is of Lumia. You don't tell us about that. Were you there from the beginning? Yeah. So um, my background was I studied in engineering and then graduated in 2008 and um, was really pretty disillusioned with the job opportunities in front of me partly just because the economy was crap, but partly because most jobs involve doing harm to people. And um, I didn't want to do that. Uh, so I was kind of drifting for a while and just exploring and going on a voyage of self-discovery and all of that um, stuff that privileged people do. And um, and then I saw Occupy Wall Street take off in 2011 and it caught my attention. Um, it, it felt like, hey, these people are kind of weird in the same way that I am and they're angry in the same way that I am and they're creative in the same way that I am. Uh, so me and a bunch of people, uh, friends of mine and uh, I guess activists that I'd worked with before got involved with Occupy Wellington when it, when it came to here in New Zealand. And that was October 15th, I think, was the first day, 2011. And then um, very rapidly went from this position of like, hmm, this is interesting, I'm going to observe it, to, okay, I'm completely invested in this community and I'm going to do everything I can to... Um, help this new emerging village in the middle of the city to survive and thrive. Um, and at the time, you know, for the first couple of weeks, our camp was growing at a rate of about 20% per day. And the number of camps around the world were growing at about 20% per day. There was no one driving it, you know. So sitting in the middle of that going, there's something happening. It's now in thousands of cities. Um, it's all being organized non-hierarchically through some kind of emergent swarm um, through some collective intelligence or um, who knows what. That was pretty profound and transformative for me and, and a lot of people. And, of course, anyone who's paid any attention at all to what happened with Occupy, it didn't end particularly well, you know. The, the camps that weren't um, crushed by the state were, they pretty much all self-destructed under the weight of consensus decision-making. And so those of us that were involved, you know, were sort of left with a, with a giant so what okay, you've just had this transformative experience, uh, but it kind of fell over, so what are you going to do about it? And I felt like um, I didn't really have any other option but to pursue whatever was magic about that experience and and make it more resilient and share it with more people. And so I think there were about four or five of us from Occupy at that point that got introduced to Inspiral. And like everyone else, we had no clue what Inspiral is. Um, we heard it was a bunch of like tech-savvy do-gooders so we went to them and we were like, you know, can you make some software um, that's going to help Occupy be less of a shambles? And uh, they said, cool idea. Yep, that sounds good. But we don't, we're not going to do that for you. You should do it and we'll just support you. So that support added up to like space in their um, shared office, an internet connection, introductions to lots and lots of people who eventually, you know, joined the company in the long run. And a lot of... Um, just really basic skills of entrepreneurialism, you know, like um, how to take a giant vision and cut it down to this week's job and then next week's one and next week's one and and um, and how to, yeah, experiment with structure in a way that's actually, uh, that kind of works, you know, that's, that's not too disruptive, that um, we don't have to have a traditional corporate structure but we're going to have more than nothing. We're not just a, like crazy swarm, we're actually inventing some structure to um, take the place of the, corporate hierarchy so that was yeah 2012 really we were getting started meeting in spiral and then just 
as we started testing out the idea for um, the piece of software, you know, really simple piece of software for group decision making, we just found more and more demand from from all sorts of people. We were really thinking about activists first and foremost, and then next thing we know, we had the city council getting in touch saying, "Can we use that?" And we had distributed companies saying, "Can we get, can we use that?" And so pretty quickly, we realised we were onto a big idea, and um, a bunch of hobbyists were not going to do it justice. So that's when we formed the workers co-op and um, you know incorporated and started taking ourselves a bit more seriously. And so since then, it's been um, just a long, hard slog of, of trying to form a sustainable organisation that um, you know reinforces our values rather than undermine them. Yeah, a slog. It's not really a slog, is it? It must, be, must have been fun too. Well, it's, it's, it's extremely fun. It's extremely fun. I guess the slog bit is just um, we do everything the hard way. You know, like we're really relentless about our values and um, uncompromising. And so uh, it's a slog to, to find the intersection between idealism and pragmatism on every decision. But we do it. Yeah, it's something we talked about. So I, I went for context listeners. I went to a workshop run by some of uh, Rich's colleagues yesterday. So this is all very fresh in my head. Um, and one of the things we talked about there was this, uh, which is on my mind, is a kind of balance between like introspection as, a, as an organization like you know who are we what, what are our values how do we structure ourselves versus looking outward to your customers and what their needs are and how much money they're able to give you and and this like getting that balance right is is uh, very important and i would say that the introspection um happens more um in the smaller group, so say say like Lumio is a venture, we call it, like a venture within Inspiral. Um, you've also got other kinds of small groups like pods or teams or working groups, you know, different kinds of small groups. But that's that's really where the introspection happens. We don't spend that much time at the full network general assembly level um, saying what are our values and, and what's the strategy and what are we here for and all that sort of stuff. That That's not really, that's not really how the culture's set up. The culture's much more about like, Hey, I'm doing this. Do you want to do it with me? That's much more the tone of the conversation. So it's almost like the law, the law of the law of two feet from an open space, just writ large at an organisational level. Yeah, that's definitely a strong informer. You know, I mean, open space is a really excellent example where you've got a, a minimal set of rules, and if, in my experience, if you follow the rules exactly, open space is always amazing. And if you mess up any one of the rules, it's always compromised. And that's kind of the one of the inspirations for, for how we're trying to organise is just get that that perfect set of minimal rules that allow people to, you know, I'm loath to say self-organise. I think that's a pretty problematic phrase because um, usually someone's doing the organising. But <laughs> to, to organise in a way where everyone gets to participate, if we put it that way. So what is your set of minimal rules? That. Well, at Inspiral, we've got, um, I think we just signed off our seventh agreement. Um, and and if you're interested, you can go into handbook.inspiral.com. Um, and, and that's where we've publicly documented all of our agreements, which are the formal things, and then guides, which are sort of like how we implement them. This is much more descriptive, like this is this is how things are operating. Um, and, and they're things like how we handle money. So... Money's a real. Um, it's like a crystallizing point, you know, in any in any um, economic community, and um, we have got a real interesting approach to money. So, um, 
it's hard to explain without you know a whiteboard and in half an hour. But <laughs> the short version is every individual and every venture uh, voluntarily sets how much of their income they'd like to share with the collective, whether that's so anywhere usually between zero and twenty percent, depending on whatever circumstances they're in. So, for instance, if I'm a contractor and I've I've just got a lucrative contract because of the association with Inspiral, then I'd put 20% in because I'm like, yep, sweet, this is this is an Inspiral thing. Whereas if I um, am, maybe I'm broke or you know I just need to hold on to every cent I've got, then I might make it 0% or anything in between. And then all that money goes into the collective, into the, into the middle, this imaginary middle. And um, roughly half of that goes to cover just our fixed costs, um, running the software, paying some administrators and that sort of stuff. And then the other half is discretionary spending. So everyone in the network can propose to use the collective money. And then everyone who earned the money gets to say where it goes. So there was a time a couple of summers ago where I was I was I was broke for a bit, you know, I was kind of between contracts. And so I put a pitch up to the to the network saying, uh, I'd like you to pay me to do some writing work. And you know, I got a couple of grand or something to go and write up some some articles about how Inspiral works, and and that covered my little cash flow bump. Um, but then you have you know other creative projects like the majority of people around Inspiral are freelancers, and so they don't have the benefits of um, traditional employment. So someone put up uh, we call it a bucket this proposal for funding, and they put up a bucket for counselling. So now there's a couple of thousand dollars sitting there. So that if you need to, you can go see a counsellor and you don't need to pay for it if you can't. You know, there's a collective money there. So you get all sorts of like really creative um, initiatives underway um, that are, like I say, crystallised by the money. The money is kind of an excuse to do stuff together. Occupy did collapse in a, in a not particularly wonderful way in a lot of places. And uh, so there must be some um, structures, I guess, within in Spiral that for it to have been going successfully for so long to sort of control or dissipate the friction that, that must from time to time uh, erupt? It's messy. It's really, really messy. We're, um, we're being very experimental and most of us have got the, you know, we're in that kind of privileged position where we can afford to um, try things out and most of us don't have dependents and so on and so we can, um, we can play fast and loose but people definitely do get hurt. And um, I would say at the at the full network level, we haven't really got great solutions for for um, preventing that hurt and then resolving it after the fact. Um, but we do have good systems at a smaller level. So, for instance, within Lumio, um, because we're an intimate group that has been growing our identity and our processes really closely, really in a really dense, tight knit way. Um, we've developed really effective processes for so for, for that instance it's for conflict resolution you know so um, from the very minor thing of what do you do when um, you don't like the way that someone's just communicated to what do you do when two of you just really can't work together anymore and you know the sort of escalation ladder along that way and and who do you call in and, and how do we get that done in a way that um, is healthy that that um, leads to everyone learning and keeps everyone safe along the way and all that sort of stuff that that's comparatively easy to develop when you're talking about a dozen people but when you're talking about 250 people that are now spread across the globe it's uh, much more challenging and so 
personally, my as a design philosophy, I guess, is to focus on the small groups and run lots of, basically run lots of experiments in parallel and then learn from each other what's working. And Could we dig into a little bit the relationship between Lumio and Inspiral and Lumio's members in Inspiral? Are, are they all members, individually members? How, how does it work? So there are some similarities between the Lumio structure and the Inspiral structure. And one of them that is really critical, and this I basically recommend to every non-hierarchical group I work with, is we call it the contributor and member circles. Um, you could have whatever other, other language you like, but the idea is that you have concentric circles. So the big circle is the contributor, and it, um, it, it's like really easy to get into that circle. Uh, it's like anyone who wants to help out, you're, you're in. Um, whereas the member is a much tighter circle in the middle, which is... Um, much more high trust, much higher barrier of entry, much more committed, uh, much more explicit rights and responsibilities. So um, both in Lumia and in Spiral, we use that model and, and we try to do as much as we can out in the contributor space. We share all the information with contributors and so on. Um, we make decisions with contributors, but the members group is always there as a backstop. To be a Inspiral venture doesn't take much. You need to have a few Inspiral members involved and um, we basically just make a, an MOU, a Memo of Understanding, between the company and the Inspiral Foundation. And, um, and then everything else is, is pretty optional. So in Lumio's case, I'd say, well, just about all of us now are Inspiral members, but that's not, that's not always been the case, you know. Um, and there are plenty of other ventures that will have probably less than half of their people would be involved with Inspiral. It's just just sort of what suits them or not. Lumio and Inspiral, Lumio is probably one of the ventures that's the most closely interlinked with Inspiral. Um, something about the, that decision-making piece meets that software piece, you know, the, the intersection between understanding how groups of people work and understanding how technology works. That's what Lumio does and that's what Inspiral does. You know, there's a real close link there. One of the ways that plays out is... Um, so Lumio pays my wages, and one day a week I spend that on Inspiral stuff. Before I got on this call, I was just hacking around on some spreadsheets, um, trying to start up a new a new organizing experiment in Inspiral. Um, and it, we think it makes sense from the Lumio business perspective to invest in Inspiral's success um, because we're in a mutually beneficial relationship. I mean, you know, Matt got to meet some Inspiral people, and they pointed him to Lumio. And, and we're in this like uh, positive mutual exchange. So that's the idea is that that would be the, the model for lots and lots of different ventures. You'd get that mutual exchange going in lots of different ways. To be clear though, the Inspiral Foundation doesn't own a stake in uh, Lumio, does it? So no. there's no kind of explicit financial relationship between the two bodies at all? No, and we actually, we used to do... We used to experiment with a few um, kind of equity stakes and that sort of thing and actually backed away from it and returned them. Um, and, I mean, that decision might be revisited in future, but it's just the, found, the Inspiral Foundation is not an investment firm, you know, and Inspiral's not an incubator. And having a stake in something, you know, it's not really set up to play a governance role in other people's ventures. Maybe I'd like to talk a little bit more about Lumio, actually. So you said that you started it um, because of your experience with yeah the Occupy movement, and 
it collapsing under the weight of consensus decision making. Could you outline what the problems with consensus decision making are? I wouldn't exactly describe it as the problems with consensus. It's it's the problem with the way it was implemented at Occupy. First and foremost for me was the fact that we were trying to do consensus decision making with no training, so no support, no um, no investment in in the hard work of getting groups to work together, which is you know which is work that is consistently diminished and undervalued in society. It's if you're lucky, it's women's work, but usually it's nobody's work. And um, so there's that factor. Then you've got the factor of um, we're doing this with a a group with no consistent membership. So some people are deeply invested. Some people just turned up that day. Some people are drunk, and you're trying to you're trying to host a consensus decision making with with this group of people. And and consensus just doesn't work if the people don't care about each other. Like care is a is a prerequisite of consensus working. And people that are living together they care about each other, but random people that just turned up that day don't. <laughs> um, so that we had no way of acknowledging that different level of stakeholding and that different relationship and commitment to the to the collective. And then um, the bit that's that's been most easy for us to work on is the the tyranny of time and space, where if you want to participate, you have to be in that meeting at that time, which just excludes, you know, the ninety nine point nine percent of the world who can't be there at that time because they're raising kids or they're at a job or they've got some other interests besides sitting in a meeting for six hours. So that's been the focus point for Lumio is, well, let's just um, move that decision-making process onto the internet and um, make it asynchronous so people can participate as and when it suits them rather than forcing everyone into that um, real-time, in-person decision. And that completely shifts the, the quality of, of the way that people relate to each other. We're in the middle of a research project to investigate how the use of Lumio changes groups over time. And it's really hard to put your finger on it, and our researchers are having a hard time with it. But people operate with a certain reverence when they arrive in Lumio. There's, there's, a, there's a different quality to the conduct that people have. Um, and, and a huge part of that is because it's, it's asynchronous. You're reflective. You get to stop and think. You consider it. All the information's there. It's written down, so it's not like you're going to just put a throwaway comment. You know that this is actually you're accountable for what you say, and the membership's obviously controlled as well. You know, it's not just a free for all social media chat. It's this group of members that are committed to some kind of project or or product. They're making decisions together. So, yeah, that's the that's kind of the easy bit to solve, and then the rest is kind of what we're working on now around um, yeah, how do you train people and support them and that sort of stuff. It, it reminds me a lot of a pull request. Like each Lumio is, is a lot like a pull request, only the protocol for deciding whether to merge is more formalized. So in, a, in an open source project, you you know, any of the members could just randomly go, I like it, I'm going to merge it. Boom. Um, whereas you, you've got a more kind of formalized structure for the, for the decision about whether it's, whether it's considered good or not. I, one of the things I think is interesting, like, um, you know, I know one of one of Inspiral's principles is diversity, and um, it's something that we really try our best to encourage in the open source project as well. And one of the things, that, one of the wonderful but challenging things that comes with diversity is you have people with different opinions, different perspectives, and they disagree. And actually, I think the there's a great there's a tremendous power in that like where you can see the 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 tension between two points of view there's a you you can harness that that tension for for good 
um, if it's done in the right way. And uh, I wonder whether you think that Lumio, the tool, can really help with that, or is it more about... Um, because obviously that tension can also be awful. Like people's feelings can get hurt. People flame and are rude and... Um, uh, and, and and text then becomes a, a really appalling medium for having that discussion, right? Because it's much easier to type something mean into a, into a text box and press send than it is to say it to another human's face. Um, have you experienced that yourself? Do you think Lumio, is there any way that Lumio can help with that? Or is it more about having respect for one another outside of the tool and then just using the tool to have the kind of respectful conversation that you would have anyway? I'd say at, at a sort of a higher level, like stepping back from the software a little bit, um, diversity is a really easy word to say and a really complex thing to put in practice. And um, while, you know, you could look at Lumio and measure some kinds of diversity, you know, like um, we've got a gender balance on our team. That's pretty awesome for a tech company. Um, but we don't really have an um, ethnically diverse team. And... Um, We've got a little bit of age diversity, but, um, you know, like there's all these different factors that you can start cutting it across and, and go or pass or fail on that. And definitely we have the ambition to be diverse. We, as in, um, to my mind, it just should be that the, the makeup of our group should more or less match the makeup of the society that we live in um, and shouldn't just select for people that have certain access to certain privileges, uh, which is the, the usual case, especially in tech. Um, so it's it's easy to say that's an ambition, but then, you know, we wouldn't want to go and select a random group of people that are as different as possible and then put them in a group and say, now go for it. You know, like you, you need to have some kind of, there needs to be some kind of coherence. So um, I think that's what you've seen, especially at Inspiral, that Inspiral started out incredibly uniform. It was It was all white software developers who were men, of a certain age with no kids, you know, and then and then had a very and very similar politics and experience and all that sort of stuff, and then over time the diversity has grown. So okay, not just men, we'll have women. Okay, um, not just software developers, we'll have designers and business developers, and you know, just very slowly increasing the the um, the range of different people that are involved, and doing that in a conscious way that everyone actually gets a, a realistic chance at shaping that collective culture that you're building that is that is something distinct of any of the cultures that those people have come from. So that's that's a real challenge, you know. That's a real challenge. And I, I and I think if you looked at um, at who holds the the most sort of social capital at Inspiral, it's still it's still a lot of the people that, that were there in the early days that for all the effort we put into distributing that, it's still um, a really similar bunch of people and we haven't got that much diversity and it's extremely hard to, toler to tolerate it. Um, and at an organisational level, personally, my... Um, I mean, I keep I keep banging on about this, but my preference is to just keep splitting up into small groups and, and get your diversity that way. So you have um, Inspiral Wellington and Inspiral Auckland and Inspiral London and they're all a bit different and they've all got a, a different makeup and a different emphasis in, the, in their um, agreements and their culture is slightly different and so on. Um, when that comes down to the the practical imp implementation and the, the software in Lumio, um, I, I would say, well, for one factor, yeah, like you said, it comes down to the quality of your relationships 
independent of the tool. It comes down to the quality of your facilitator. So, you know, the software is not going to facilitate you. You need to, someone needs to be doing that job of making sure that people's voices are being heard and that uh, there are guidelines that are being upheld. The software is really, yeah. Um, groups do tend to develop this kind of shared moderation practice. Um, I mean, just the simple thing that you can you can agree together. What are our communication guidelines? You know, how do we want to talk to each other? You can agree that, and then you can put that in, in the top of your group and say, "This is what we agreed about how we talk to each other." So everyone's sort of got access to that and can point to that and be like, you know, pull your head in a little bit. But then there are some little things about the tool that do harness polarization for good. So. One example would be in a um, say you're in a in a really well well known tight knit group, um, and someone puts up a proposal and says we should do this. You can have ten people say yep, great idea, and one person that says no, I'm not comfortable with this, and that can be a really productive intervention that um, draws the attention of the group onto. So what's your concern? Can we resolve it? You know, either by providing some new information or do we need to change direction? So that's super productive in a way that um, can get lost if you're just like emailing or chatting or something. You don't have that graphical representation of we've got this much agreement and this much disagreement. And then in a in a less well-known group, in a, in a say in a public group where you've got um, people that are, that are gravitating towards a particular topic rather than knowing each other very well, we've seen that um, that proposal functionality as well can really help turn that that polarizing character into a really productive figure in a, in a discussion. So the example I've got in mind is um, in Wellington, our city council used Lumio to, to do some citizen engagement around um, a new alcohol management strategy for the city. And there's um, one particular character who's well known in the city for turning up to every council meeting and just you know having these quite ridiculous ideas and going on and on and on at length, as you can imagine, because they are in every town hall meeting ever in the world. Um, and this this chap turned up on Lumio, and everyone was like, "Oh, how's this going to go?" And um, immediately, as soon as the discussion was open, he jumps up with this thing, you know, quite absurd proposal. We should, I don't know what it was. We should ban alcohol together or something like that. He had this like ten point list of all the things that we should do about all these drastic steps we should take about alcohol. And instead of well, one thing because it's text instead of spoken. You know, you can scroll past a long thing instantaneously, whereas you can't if you if you have to listen to them. Like that's really irritating. <laughs> but uh, more, I think, more interestingly and more distinctive about Lumio was people responded to that proposal and actually gave them the benefit of the doubt and said, "Look, nine of those ideas are ludicrous, but there's one in there that's actually all right. Like, let's develop that idea together." And and so what you saw over the course of um, the few weeks that this engagement was running was this guy switched from being a quite angry, quite loud mouth, just what I would describe as a, a lonely old dude who's just trying to get some attention, to a useful contributor and a participant in a group that is like throwing in some creative ideas and actually stimulating conversation, where in other groups it was totally quiet because everyone was too polite. You know? <laughs> so it, 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 can, it can contribute. I think most of it comes down to the, the, the facilitators in the room, but... We're, we are really eager to make the software as sort of um, as like an augmented reality facilitator as possible. 
So how do you think we you can take these ideas if you're in a you know, a regular software team inside a regular company? How can you take these ideas or use Lumio um, in your day-to-day work? How could it help you? I would say if you're feeling the pain of, of decision-making, you know, because sometimes you are and sometimes you're not, um, the pain might manifest as um, conversations on your chat program um, where decisions get made and then six hours later someone turns up from another time zone and goes, what the hell, this is crazy. Um, or um, another symptom might be email threads that look like they're about to converge on a decision but then someone else comes in with a random query and you go off in a whole new direction and you never get to a conclusion Um, or it might be just this feeling of oh god we're always in meetings and I never get a chance to just focus on writing some code this sucks Um, if you're experiencing any of those sorts of things then you may be suffering from some decision making fatigue and a bit of support might be in order Um, and, and you can yeah, harness that that frustration that you and your team will be feeling and say, why don't we try shifting this into an asynchronous decision-making space? We'll try Lumio out and, and see if it fits. You know, it's a big complex thing and, and you can't um, necessarily copy and paste it from one place to another. And, and my mission at the moment is to try and find what are the repeatable bits that actually make sense for people in different contexts. That's, you know, the software is, is the kind of obvious place to try. And, and the rest I'm, I'm working on now is like trying to pack out, package up some of the other ideas into, into, into um, yeah, like packages that, that you can incorporate into your organization that don't require any software overhead. So I described that member and contributor thing that might work for some kind of projects that you're running where you have like you want people to participate, but you don't want to give all the decision making over to everyone immediately. Um, another one that we've been running really successfully and I know of it working in about six groups now. Um, it's a kind of peer-to-peer accountability system, support system. We call it stewarding. So within our co-op, there's 11 of us, and, and um, I'm stewarding MJ, and MJ is stewarding James, and James is stewarding Rob, and you know, it goes around in a circle like that. We check in with each other once a month and have a conversation about how work's going and what support do you need and that sort of thing. And that just, um, it's a really simple practice but has quite profound effects on the relationships between people. Um, it's the kind of stuff that you'd often have a manager for, but by distributing it across everyone, you really get a, a massive diversity of approaches and you really get to learn a lot from each other. Um, and you build these really deep relationships that you wouldn't otherwise get. We usually pair people up from across the organization that wouldn't normally have much insight into each other's worlds. And that really lifts the, the shared context that people have and the depth of care that people have for each other and so on. We've hit on a similar thing for like supporting each other and, um, but we've been sort of r- randomly, we've been experimenting with different ways of choosing who you have that that one-to-one time with. Um, and w- one idea we had was was literally having like a, a, a random thing that would just book a meeting for the two of you for an hour once a month and you didn't know who you were going to get. It's just like, how about you spend some time with this person? How about you spend some time, time with this person? Because we all value that time. We haven't quite worked out whether it's better to be talking to many different people or staying with the same person so the circle's an interesting one. I think ours right now, if you drew the diagram, there'd be like lots of lines going across the circle because yeah. we sort of we've tried out different things. The benefit of um, keeping the relationships is that you go really deep, and yeah. um, and then you can count on those people to be a support person during a conflict, and that's where it really starts to pay off. Um, because it's like if I have an issue with 
um, Alana, I can call my steward and, and be like, can you host a conversation between us two? You're a trusted party. That doesn't right. have a dog in the fight. Yeah. Um, and that makes a huge difference, just having one extra person in the room. Just uh, it busts through 90% of conflicts like that quick um, because people shift their behavior when there's someone observing, you know. So um, I'm on the hunt for, for little packages like that that I can say, try this, try that. Um, and, and I reckon there's probably about half a dozen of them are ready to go and I'm just in the process of um, road testing them on other groups and actually validating them. So I very much want to keep in touch with you. Um, if the people are listening to the podcast and they want to kind of keep on top of your, you know, these experiments that you're doing in Spiral and at Lumio and what you're learning, where are good places to sort of follow the news? I would say um, if you're interested in the kind of stuff that I've been talking about, then follow me on Twitter, which is Rich Decibels. And that's my specific angle on all things in Spiral. And, you know, that's one of 250 people and everyone else has got a totally different idea. So for a bit more of a balanced view, you can follow Inspiral on Twitter. We've got a, a publication on Medium called Inspiral Tales, and that's got some pretty cool content coming through. So I'm like a curator on that, and I just encourage lots of different people from, okay, this is another bucket that we've got funded. I'm the fairy blog mother. So um, <laughs> whenever someone is like, yeah, yeah, so I raised a bunch of money so that whenever someone is like, at any time I can show up in a conversation and be like, that sounds like a great blog post. I'll give you a hundred bucks to write it. And so I just like <laughs> get people writing blog posts to try and, you know, to try and diversify the, the kind of stories that are coming out. And that's really paying off so that you can read that stuff on Inspiral Tales. And there's um, obviously a bunch of stuff about this organizational design, but then there's all sorts of other experiences that people are sharing there too. Um and, and the, yeah, the, the handbooks that I mentioned, handbook.inspiral.com and lumio.coop are both ripe with really interesting, real lived experience of how to do this stuff. Yeah. So those are some good places to hang out. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Richard. It's been a fascinating podcast. Uh, thanks so much for your time and joining us today. Remember, everybody, you can subscribe on iTunes and we'd really appreciate it if you could rate it to help other people find it. Um, you can also share the links on SoundCloud and many other places. I'm sure Theo will link in the show notes. 